You're listening to The Real Wealth Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. In March of last year, the WHO announced the global pandemic. And here we are one year later. How has this pandemic affected real estate? And today, specifically, we're going to talk about commercial real estate. I'm Kathy Fetke, and welcome to The Real Wealth Show. Our guest today is a principal of the Boyd Company, one of the nation's most trusted and well-known corporate site selection firms. Boyd clients include Boeing, Chevron, PepsiCo, Visa International, Shell, Honda, Hewlett-Packard, and more. John's expert perspectives on corporate site selection, economic development, and the real estate industry are routinely featured in the global news media. And he's with us here today. So John, welcome back to The Real Well Show. Hey, Kathy, it's great to be with you. There's been a lot of changes since the last time we spoke. Uh, we were really worried about commercial real estate six months ago and uh, where that was headed. Where are we today in 2021 in regards to commercial real estate? And I know that's a big question because there's lots of different kinds of commercial real estate. Well, we're certainly in a much better place today than we were the last time you and I had, had spoken. We last spoke about a year ago when the Dow dropped, the biggest drop in, since 1987. Uh, there was a time of just tremendous uncertainty. Uh, we're entering this, this horrible uh, pandemic, uh, shutdowns. Uh, it's a much different outlook that we have today, obviously. There, there's, uh, we're beginning to return to normal. The economy is recovering. Um, and there's a lot to feel good about and excited about uh, in the year ahead. Well, that's, that's great news. So now you are a consultant, I believe, to, to companies that are looking for the right site for their commercial property, right? So what are you seeing now? Are you seeing companies being aggressive and, and trying to tie up land and build things or what, what's going on out there? We are. This is an era of unprecedented mobility for both companies and, and for people. Um, we're very busy today advising companies to realign their office space uh, with trends that reflect uh, hiring patterns. Of course, the remote workforce trend has been a major theme throughout the economy. Remote working was a trend prior to COVID. COVID accelerated the remote working trend. We expect it to be an enduring trend. And based upon what our clients are, are telling us and what we're planning with our, our office projects, uh, we expect more of a hybrid uh, scenario where office spaces will continue to get smaller. Uh, it'll be really a people-first approach to economic development. Um, and then the other dominant theme that, that we're seeing on the industrial end is this idea of last-mile distribution for uh, goods and services and reshoring, which has been a, a major focus of both parties over the past several years to bring back supply chain manufacturing back to the U.S., would you say that is still in play? We're, we're seeing more companies bring jobs back? Well, quite frankly, we're concerned about some of the new tax increases on the horizon, increasing the corporate income tax rate to 28%, I think is going to be difficult for companies. Uh, and it's going to slow the pace of reshoring. And I think a lot of companies that want to bring operations back to North America, okay, the silver lining with COVID it underscored the danger of having your supply chain concentrations in Asia. So a lot of companies want to do business, bring their operations back to the U.S. What we see happening is Mexico and especially Canada emerging as real nearshore alternatives to the U.S. 
because of the, the increase in the corporate income tax rate, where our clients are asking us to look at operation, look at alternatives in, in Mexico, Sonora is really hot right now, and in Canada, Ontario, Eastern Ontario, uh, Montreal and Toronto for the banking and finance sectors uh, are in the mix for a lot of projects that otherwise would have been in the U.S., but there's a lot of hesitancy now, given some of the new tax increases and new regulations uh, on, on uh, that, that are coming. You know, one of the things buried in the two trillion dollar stimulus package was sixty billion dollars of new tax increases and a lot of limits for corporate deductions, which is going to slow the pace of not just hiring, but also companies buying materials and goods. So that's that's alarming to us, and it's going to slow the pace of our economic recovery. Interesting. So you're seeing companies choose to move their businesses to Canada or Mexico uh, because the tax is different? Right. The, the corporate income tax in, in Canada is, is 15%. That's going to be roughly half of what the corporate tax will be uh, when we increase it to 28%. When you factor in the favorable exchange rate and the nationalized health care system, which lowers labor, uh, which lowers healthcare costs for employers, those operating cost savings become enormous. And, and so a lot of our clients are, are beginning to look at uh, Canada as a real premier preferred nearshore alternative to doing business in the US. So when those products come over the border, uh, will there be tariffs to, to make up for that difference or not? Yes, I mean, clearly we've been realigning our, our trade policies uh, to you know, promote reshoring. One of the policy objectives of the Biden administration is to proactively punish corporations that are moving their production and, and their offices to Mexico and Canada. We'll see how that plays out. Uh, at the end of the day, corporations will be studying the numbers very closely, and uh, it'll be difficult to really tax companies to the degree where those operating cost uh, benefits and tax savings don't, don't outweigh any type of potential surcharge or, 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 or penalty, if you will. Fascinating. All right. So coming back to office space, I mean, a year ago, I was very concerned about office because, you know, companies were suddenly learning that they didn't need an office or not, not all of them did. And that remote work could be even better for their workers. And uh, so are you, when you say that companies are still looking for office space, at, but they're redesigning it, what, what does that look like? Well, projects are getting smaller. About you know, a decade or so ago, the average square foot uh, per worker for one of our office projects was about 200 square feet per worker. Uh, today, it's about 100 square feet per worker um, because you know companies are in a cost-cutting mode. They want to reduce their brick-and-mortar Class A office space commitments, and they want to incorporate this idea of, of remote working. You know, the, the cost savings for companies are enormous, and more of there's more data now uh, HR. Uh, uh, data that shows that overwhelmingly employees want the option to work remotely, at least on a hybrid basis. So moving forward, many of our clients are viewing the office really as sort of a space station where workers re report maybe once or twice a week. Some, some companies will incentivize their workers to be in the office more. Some companies will, will encourage their employees to spend less time in the office. That'll really be company specific. But, uh, you know, over the, 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 Next several years, we expect a, a slow return to the office, and it'll be more of this hybrid approach. 
know, and, and that has enormous repercussions, not just for the commercial real estate market, but also the housing market. And it's one of the drivers for the mixed use development, this idea of live, work and play. Yeah, I was just going to say, obviously, our audience is more interested in the residential side of it, but our residential is tied to commercial. It's tied to where their jobs are usually. And we've seen that change a lot this past year, where people making pretty large salaries that that usually afford a big city lifestyle can now move to a small town and can easily afford a home in a smaller town, which is, of course, driving prices up there. Uh, so are you seeing um, that trend continuing where people will be able to live in more affordable places, but kind of work from anywhere? Or are you seeing the businesses moving to those more affordable places as well? A lot of the high growth markets are beginning to experience inflationary wage pressures and inflationary real estate costs. From a housing perspective, the biggest issue we have, of course, is the lack of supply. Uh, we expect housing starts to increase uh, over the course of 2021, as developers have more confidence with the economic recovery. Millennials, of course, are driving this. Millennials, which have put off buying a home or are increasingly getting into uh, the home buying market. Um, so we think that'll obviously be a, a major catalyst of, of new development. And a lot of this will be on, on the mixed use front. It'll be in, in markets that have a low cost of living and offer the types of lifestyle amenities that young workers want. Uh, you know, the biggest part of our labor force today is, that's, is the millennial uh, workforce. It's the most studied demographic, I think, in human history. And they're very receptive to this idea of live, work, and play. And some of the most exciting development activity we're seeing in North America today are mixed-use developments. I mean, it's really become a major industry attraction tool for elected officials and for economic development officials to really promote a major draw major signature mixed-use development, whether that be Riverton in New Jersey or the Woodlands in, in Houston or Ovation in Cincinnati, Rio Del Rio is a, a very uh, one that we're very high on in, in, in Sacramento. Um, and you're seeing that this become a major theme and narrative in the economic development message messaging today. So you believe that people will want to interact and hang out in large groups again sometime soon? Yes, I think uh, fortunately we're getting uh, COVID behind us, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it's uh, the vaccines are ramping up. All of that uh, is encouraging. The, the data trend has been very positive over the last several weeks. Let's hope that continues. I think we're all ready to, to get back to, to get back to normal. I certainly I, I can't wait to get back to normal. I miss traveling and uh, all the the normal things that uh, we've you, you now appreciate again. Yeah, just literally eating in a restaurant is a big deal. <laughs> yes, and you're in California, and you've really yeah. suffered uh, with the some of the more stricter lockdowns. I, I live and work primarily in South Florida, and we've been much more open. Uh, oh, you didn't feel it much. I mean, I I'm not complaining. Uh, having I had to be forced st to stay home in order to stay home. <laughs> I had been traveling so much. I I actually really appreciated that time at home with my family. And it's going to be actually harder for me to get back on the road because it's been so nice. Um, but yeah, of course, you know, I went to visit my brother-in-law in Tahoe for his 70th birthday, and he's an incline on the Nevada side, and they're allowed to eat in indoors. And, and we just, it was such a treat. We hadn't had the chance to do that for so long. 
Um, yeah. So what about hotels and restaurants and that sector that's been hit so hard? Well, look, I think that'll be one of the, the last areas of the economy to really rebound. Um, but as corporate travel begins to pick up, as some of the lockdowns in major cities begin to ease, I think capacity rates in Manhattan are going up uh, next week. I think all of that will be good for the industry. There's some new trends also in the restaurant industry. I think this idea of ghost kitchens and, and incorporating a lot of the virtual technology platforms is something that, that a lot of celebrity chefs are, are jumping on that bandwagon and working with some of the nation's top developers and, and hotel operators to incorporate that technology. I think that's exciting. I don't and know what that is. A ghost it, kitchen? Yeah, this, this is a, a, a kind of a, a new emerging industry. And you know, we talk about this COVID pandemic and the economic uh, devastation it's caused, but it's also been a time of great innovation where companies are creating new efficiencies with new virtual technologies. And the restaurant industry is really adapted where your uh, signature chefs are doing the takeout only operations and incorporating a lot of the uh, virtual technology, you know, watch over your food being prepared. There's an entertainment aspect to that. A lot of the Instagram influencers are, are getting on board with that scenario. So, but I, I think a return to traditional dining is something we all want to happen, hopefully sooner rather than later. And I think we're getting very, very close. Uh, and with respect to the hotel industry, we expect corporate travel to obviously, uh, and, and, and leisure travel to really pick up. People are excited to get back out again. And you know, the, the hotel industry is adapting. This, this idea of the staycation is being embraced by brands like Marriott and Hilton and leveraging the remote workforce trend where you can do you know, extended stays and, and work by the pool. I think that's a very modern, hip, uh, exciting uh, theme. And you're seeing hospitality markets like Orlando and Las Vegas and Reno incorporate that into their offerings. I think that, that'll be something that's here to stay. I think the idea of a staycation uh, is, is going to be a, a big part of the corporate travel market in the months and years ahead. Interesting. Yeah, we have two uh, single-family subdivision uh, developments in the Reno area. And boy, oh boy, the last few months, uh, there's been incredible, obviously, incredible appetite for those for those homes were sold out. And, um, and then in Carson City as well. So, um, all right. Well, what do you see with lending? I know I just spoke with a lender yesterday. Rates went up, at least for investor properties. Um, do you do you believe that rates will stay low or are they going to continue to tick up? I, obviously, we have record lows that they are going up. I, we expect them to, to tick up this year, you know, but, but the, 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 I expect them overall to, to stay low. I think that's been every indication we've, we've had will be that they will stay low. It's really a question of, of inventory increasing with, with respect to, I think, pricing. Um, but yeah, I, I would expect rates to gradually tick up, but, but still remain low. Yeah, I did read recently that even if uh, even as the economy improves, the Fed is still going to be continuing to buy bonds to keep those rates low. Uh, so good for us. Good for us. So we talked a little bit about the new stimulus bill, and I hear there's another one around the corner for infrastructure growth. Uh, so we're printing lots of money, trillions, I, I, five, six trillion, I don't, who knows, who knows that? I don't know the Fed, if the Fed's ever been audited to really find out. Uh, but what, what is the impact, do you think, on real estate given another 
$1.8 trillion will be circulating? I mean, long-term, it's, it's a challenge for our real estate and, and for our, our overall economy, the idea of reckless spending and, and, and borrowing. And of course, the, the new $2 trillion, the new, the new tax increases that, that are going to slow our, our recovery and our economic growth. In the short term, you know, you know uh, new, a new infrastructure bill will be a catalyst for a lot of exciting development activity around the country, roads, bridges, uh, and which our nation relies upon to be competitive in the global economy. Deepening of ports is something that I think I expect to be a part of the stimulus package. Uh, new clean energy grids, we saw what happened in Texas. I think you know, energy security is a major theme mm-hmm. for our economy moving forward. A, our, our clients in New York a couple of years ago were very excited about another tunnel under the, under the Hudson River. Uh, the, the, you know, uh, the joke now, not to sound skeptical, this massive migration of people out of Manhattan to Florida, maybe that new tunnel will just make it easier for people to, to, to get out of New York and into <laughs> the Carolinas and Florida. But, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how that plays out. Well, it's a salted question, by the way. You talk about policy out of the administration affecting blue states. Uh, beyond bailouts, I think repealing the salt deduction at 10,000 will provide some relief for California and for New York and New Jersey. And it'll at least give a, a, a narrative, it'll at least maybe perhaps give a second thought to someone contemplating a move out of those states if they can you know, deduct more of their, of their property taxes. Well, kind of, yes, and kind of what I was getting to on the uh, on the new stimulus, we know that only a, a little bit is going towards actual COVID issues and, and uh, the rest is going all over the place. But um, how will that affect real estate values? We know that in the past, when there was that kind of stimulus, that money went to stocks and to real estate and prices went up. Do you, do you see that kind of inflation with real estate? You know, it's difficult, and I want to be optimistic, it's difficult to expect this type of, you know, continue record run that real estate has been on. It's sort of uh, been detached from a lot of the fundamentals of the overall economy. Uh, I'm very much engaged in the real estate market, both residential and obviously commercial real estate with what our firm does. Uh, But, you know, there are significant, you know, fundamental challenges looking ahead that our uh, lawmakers need to deal with. Uh, But uh, again, in the short term, there are a lot of exciting drivers that we see, uh, you know, more millennials getting into the home buying market. The, the idea of more mixed use developments, I think, is exciting. Um, but yeah, obviously, there's big picture, long term challenges that our, that our policymakers need to deal with. What, with what would you say is the most concerning? Borrowing, taxing and spending. Yeah. I mean, what would you say is the most concerning? Is it um, that we're going to see higher taxes soon or what? Yeah, I think you know raising taxes on is, is a major priority of the Biden administration. He wants to target Americans earning more than four hundred thousand dollars a year with new, with new taxes. The increase in the capital gains tax and the estate tax are especially troubling, and will have you know, a big impact on the residential real estate. It'll give pause to a lot of middle class people looking to really uh, you know buy discretionary things like a second home, a vacation home investment properties, all of that will be affected by an increase in the estate tax and an increase in the capital gains tax. Mm-hmm. Interesting. What, what else do you think policymakers should be considering? 
I, I think the, the you know we we have to realize that we have a new administration that is has a much different posture on taxes and spending and regulations than, than the, the prior administration. You know, fortunately, in the U.S. system, politics is cyclical. We have a a uh, another election cycle coming in just a couple of years, and these issues will be hotly debated. You know, I think when Americans see rising gas prices and they see uh, taxes going up, that that may you know influence the dialogue. It may influence what the priorities are moving forward. I just honestly, it seems like at this point, uh, voters don't have a lot of control about how politicians spend their money, regardless of party. Uh, since Bush, then Obama, then Trump, and and now with Biden, printing money that, that is has just become the way it is. That's a theme that we're seeing, Kathy. This, you know, this idea, this last stimulus really being talked about as a prelude to basic income and not to get political or, or really uh, aggressively, uh, you know, advocate policy, but that's a real game changer for the U.S. We incentivize people really to look for alternatives other than secure employment. That, that's a real game changer for our economy moving forward. Mm. Yeah, I mean the money's got to we we got to be producing something, you know. <laughs> yes. Money doesn't actually grow on trees, unless you own real estate these days. It sure seems to. And All that, right. That's my thought. I mean, that's so many Americans now view the government as a source of wealth mm-hmm. and not the private sector. So and I, and confusing that the government is something other than us when actually the government's funded by us and government money comes from us. <laughs> so. Uh, you right. know, when I, I tell people, well, you're receiving these checks, well, you're going to pay for that. You're going to pay through inflation. You're going to pay through taxes. Uh, Absolutely. And as we raise the corporate tax, a lot of a lot of that increase will fall upon consumers as yeah. it becomes more costly for companies to do business. The consumers will, will, will bear a greater burden of, of that. In addition to less hiring, less ex- ex- uh, buying materials and goods, and also fast forwarding into the artificial intelligence and robotics era when it becomes you know, just more efficient for companies to really streamline their workforces mm-hmm. and really go all in on robotics as opposed to you know, hiring people. Uh, that's another part of the story that I think will be told more in the months ahead, especially as companies, high profile companies that want to do business in the US, trophy employers make those moves to Mexico or Canada. Mm-hmm. You know, reshoring was the big buzzword over the past several years. Now you're hearing more about nearshoring. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Well, what U.S. cities are thriving today? There's a common denominator among cities and states that are doing well. These are cities that are holding the line on taxes, that have a pro-growth strategy. Uh, states like Florida and Texas, Nevada, the Carolinas, Arizona, Utah. These are states that are attracting people, while states like Florida, while states like uh, New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, and California are stuck in this perpetual game plan of borrowing, taxing, and spending. These are states that are losing thousands of people each year. For the first time in the history of the census, New York and California will lose representation in Washington, while states like Florida and Texas are gaining representation in Washington. That's a real indictment, and it underscores this new economy that we're in. We talked about companies being more mobile than ever, people are more mobile than ever because of the technology that didn't exist a decade or so ago. So it'll be more difficult for lawmakers and policymakers to mask 
a lot of those fundamental business climate challenges in the months and years ahead. Very interesting. Um, well, you've got demographics that uh, you know really tell the story. And when you've got so many baby boomers looking for a more affordable place to live that doesn't have such high state income tax, they're going to be moving to those states, and they have been. Uh, but now you've got the Gen Xers and millennials looking for the same thing, looking to have a lifestyle that they can afford. And and especially if you're not in traffic for two hours, uh, you get to work from home, and that's two hours added to your day. Um, you're right. gonna, it's going to be interesting to see where people spread out and which towns will grow as a result of that. That's what we're really focused on. So looking at that on the small tier, um, which which towns, and I'm not sure if you have the information on this, but where which smaller towns do you see growing the most over the next decade? Uh, I think suburban in Indianapolis, Carmel is in, in Hamilton County, Indiana is a market that we see high, is continuing to be high growth in the months ahead. Uh, Columbus, uh, the, the Dublin submarket, the Dublin suburban market, one of the most attractive suburban markets in North America today. Uh, you know, we see Central Texas continuing to grow. Florida, of course, continues to do everything right from an economic development and people attraction uh, strategy. Uh, the Carolinas are certainly well positioned. And Northern Nevada, I know you're very invested in Northern Nevada. The Reno market uh, is one of the more exciting IT markets in, in North America today. Great tax climate, great in-migration of intellectual capital from the Bay Area. And a lot of those smaller markets, Gardnerville and Minden, are on the radar screen like never before as up-and-coming suburban areas where there's an abundance of land and people are moving in in the surrounding areas looking for opportunities. Very exciting. All right. Well, John, as always, it's been a pleasure to have you here on The Real Wealth Show. Thank you so much for enlightening, enlightening us with uh, all this great information. Thank you, Kathy. I appreciate it. If you'd like to get more free data on some of the strongest post-pandemic markets in the U.S., you can go to our website at realwealthshow.com. Just click on the Invest tab and you'll see a drop-down of the cities that we think are the strongest for investing in buy and hold real estate. Again, that's realwealthshow.com. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to realwealthshow.com.